When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It feels like every single day, the media and politicians want us to think that we live in a dangerous world filled with monsters. In regards to the world of prisons and rehab centers, I feel like the news wants us to believe that there is nothing redemptive inside these places, that they're just filled with disappointment and violence, rather than looking at the people inside with compassion. This week on the podcast, we have an amazing guest who is pushing back against those narratives. Her name is Nigel Poor, and she is a social activist, an artist, and she's the co-creator of the hit podcast, Ear Hustle. You might have heard of it. Ear Hustle is rallying a belief that commonality and compassion might be some of the most powerful forces on earth. Nigel first got involved in the world of prisons, and, and she started seeing her own belief of what prisons are like and what incarcerated men are like in 2011 when she got involved with San Quentin State Prison in California as a volunteer teacher for the Prison University Project. As she continued building relationships with incarcerated men and working inside the prison on various art projects, including a radio project called the San Quentin Prison Report, she started to develop, I would say, more and more empathy and to create art that brought people into that sense of empathy. And so that's what she has today in regards to ear hustle. Her story is really fascinating and I loved diving into it. I feel like her life has held so many interesting parts that have led her to be the inspiring person that she is today. I feel like I've got so much to learn from her story and I'm going out on a limb here to say that I think you might too. So I am Brandon Harvey and this is Sounds Good. Every single week on this podcast, we have conversations with inspiring people who are rejecting cynicism and using their lives to make an impact. This conversation's great, so let's just jump straight into it. I can't wait for you to fall into serious obsession with Nigel Poor. Oh my goodness, Nigel, I am so excited to be talking on the podcast with you today. Thank you so much for uh, being here. You're really kind to ask. I appreciate the opportunity. You mentioned over email that you are mildly in vacation mode right now. You're in between seasons of Ear Hustle, your amazing podcast. How is, you know, a little bit of time off between seasons going for you right now? Well, like so many things, you make assumptions about what's going to happen and that's not the reality of it at all. So (laughs) I thought we would be taking a little bit of a break, but uh, I realized there isn't too much time and that Today, we're going to be starting with some pitch meetings and figuring out the arc for the next season and who we're going to be lining up. So there isn't going to be much of a break, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, but but that's okay, because luckily, um, I really love what I do, so it doesn't feel like work. But I was imagining taking December off, but that, no, that's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah it, it might feel nice, though, I guess. I know I always feel this way to like kind of be getting ahead of things. 
You know, you won't have to release things until what, March? March, yeah, yeah. So what we hope this time is to be just set up a little bit better. When we started this project, I love podcasts, but I didn't know anything about making them. Erlon and Antoine certainly didn't either. So we were starting from a level of really not knowing. So the catch up was huge. And I hope that we learned enough last season that we'll be in a slightly better, more organized space in March, but we still have some fear about what lays ahead. Honestly, it's it's really refreshing hearing that behind the scenes from you because as somebody who has a podcast and listens to a lot of podcasts, when I heard your episode, I was like, this is amazing. This is incredible. Like, they are next level. And it's so funny to me that you say like, oh, we don't have a lot of experience because it doesn't come across. And maybe I was even surprised by that when I started kind of doing some research. I think I had a friend who was like, Brandon, you should totally have Nigel from Ear Hustle on the podcast. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's a great idea. She's amazing. And I started like going through your website and I was like, oh, her background is not in radio at all. Like she, you're an artist and this is just one of your artistic outlets right now. Yes, absolutely. So I'm a visual artist and I'm going to clarify as visual artist because I think podcast is also art. So it's just like a different kind of art. And so maybe what I had going for me was that I've spent 20 plus years as a visual artist, looking at things, trying to find stories, trying to look at the overlooked and the humble and the things most people pass by and find value in that. So I was able to take that sensibility to doing stories um, with Erlon and Antoine inside prison, but I didn't have any of the technical knowledge. And that's really important too. I, I mean, it's the same, with, I think whatever you pursue, you have to have the creative side and the interest and the desire, but you do have to have a sense of the technical Uh, I think. And then the technical stuff kind of is invisible and it supports the creative, but you can have great ideas. And if you don't know how to put it together, it's just mush and you can know all the technical stuff. And if you don't have the creativity, it's just boring. So I'm pleased when people feel like our our episodes sound good, but I'm still, it's still mysterious to me how we were able to do it. That's Um, amazing. (laughs) It's interesting that you, you say that because I feel like for me, I never really have a strong sense of that technical side with the things that I create. But usually the things that I end up getting into, I'm so passionate about it that that passion kind of carries me through that difficult learning curve of the technology stuff. Totally. Oh, no, I so agree with you. Um, I mean, I, I could use, for example, Photoshop is like this very technical thing. And if I had to sit down and learn that, I would pull my hair out, I would be so upset. But if I have a project that I need in order to, you know, to bring it to fruition and I need Photoshop, then I'm going to learn what I need to do. And I think, yeah, but that's what makes it doable, right? Yeah. So bring me back a little bit. Tell me about when you first got started as an artist. I love this phrase you just used. You said, you know, you created things around this idea of the overlooked and the humble and the things that people, you know, leave behind. What does that mean? Where did that interest begin? From as long as I can remember from, you know, a little kid, I've always been interested in collecting and organizing stuff and trying to understand how the world works and why we're here and and what is our purpose. So when I was in elementary school, I remember I had my closet all organized with shoe boxes with labels on them for each of my collections. So one had like popsicle sticks I found on the ground. One had stones, one had, you know, like dead insects. And So I just, I loved organizing and I thought that somehow I would find meaning if I could understand what these different things were. And I I, I was just born that way. And I've always been somebody who likes to listen to other people and ask questions. I'm super curious. 
And I, I love just everyday things. I want, I want to know what people are thinking. I want to know what makes them get up in the morning. And like my idea of the best fantasy possible would be to have a, a key that could open up any door <laughs> anywhere. So I could just go in and look at what people are doing or what they have. I mean, I, I don't mean not to sound creepy, but I just love that idea of the, the secrets and the small things. And I'm not interested in flash and I'm not interested in the people that come into the room and take up all the space. I'm interested in the ones that kind of retire to the corner and are looking around because I think they have a better grasp of what's happening. So I, and you know, I'm a shy person too. So maybe that's why I sort of connect with those people. You know, like when I was a kid, I also kept a, a notebook of overheard conversations. You know, so. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. That's just how I, I, and I really can't explain why, but that's just how I was. And so that led me to want to do artwork that was about that kind of thing about other people. And again, I'm going to bring up how shy I was. So I started as a photographer and, and maybe people who do audio have that same sensation, like a microphone or a camera gives you permission to ask other people questions. If you totally, right. Like if I just went up to somebody and I said, I just want to look at you. I'm really interested. And I just started <laughs> looking at them, right. That would freak them out. But if I had a camera or a microphone, oh, I, yeah. I have permission to do that. Well, I mean, my background's in photography as well. And for years, I was professionally a photographer before I transitioned into telling stories through other mediums. And I would be in, you know, random other countries. And I would just be so shy about going up to somebody and talking with them. But then if I just walked up and said, hey, can I take a photo of you? I feel like there was just this weird thing where, like, I had this immediate, like, boost of confidence just having this tool with me. Yeah, I, I think that's really, really interesting that you say that too. Yeah, I mean, all of a sudden you have permission to have a conversation with a stranger and it doesn't seem creepy in any way. And, and, I, and I love that. And the other thing I, I, I realize is that most people love to have someone ask them a question. You know, I'm a teacher and my students are often really nervous about taking a camera and going out there or, or a microphone. But I always say, people, you know, if you approach someone with... Um, you know, you're humble and you're not in their face and you approach them with curiosity and, you know, that you're going to give them a sense of dignity. Most people are going to want to talk to you. They like it. They like it. It's funny how those times that that happens in your own life where somebody, you know, talks with you, you go home and you, you're still kind of thinking about it and it's still in a positive way. And, and knowing that about myself reminds me that it's okay to go out and do that to other people. Yeah. You know, and I think being an active listener um, is a real gift that we can give to other people. <laughs> like every, people want to be heard and they want to be appreciated. And and to do that in an active way, is, I think it's really great. I think that's something I've been learning a lot more recently is, I don't know, I've always felt like I'm a good listener. And then I've just been hanging out with people recently who are like 10 times better at listening than I am. And I'm just <laughs> like, oh, I've got, I've got a long way to go here. But you feel so... You feel so known and cared for by those people that it's like, oh, if I can have a, a fraction of this and do this for other people, it's really, really encouraging. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I used to think if I, people ask me like, well, what, you know, what would you do if you had to start your life, start over again or do a different thing? And I was like, ooh, I would have liked to be a therapist. Like, that would have been, you know, so I think that that idea of wanting to listen and understand falls into that category 
um, and also being an artist doing podcasts because it is really all about kind of the other. Now, that doesn't mean I'm a selfless person. I want to, you know, I have needs and desires too. And I guess somehow if you're someone who really loves to listen, it's fulfilling something in you too. I, I'm not exactly sure what that is, but I don't want to make it sound like I come across as very selfless because I'm not. I mean, I, I just two selfless people talk to each yeah. other on a podcast. That's right. you and me right now. Right. We're perfect. Don't you think to do, to do a podcast and to you know do something that's out there in the world, you have to believe that you have something worth saying and worth totally. doing. Totally. There's a little tinge of ego in there, but I don't think it's wrong at all. I, I'm biased, um, but you've got to have some sort of belief that, that there's something worth talking about and something worth saying. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so your background is photography at first, and then your art extended beyond photography. Give me an example of your work in that, you know, more transitional period. What did that look like? Yeah, so let's see. Um, I did photography for a long time, and and I started to get a little bit bored with it, and it didn't seem like it could satisfy all the things I wanted to do. And so, yeah, I began branching away from that, and I've done projects, for example, uh, where I collected fingerprints from people. It was called... um, do you have 30 seconds and can you get your finger dirty? And I wanted to, <laughs> and I wanted to, do good name. Yeah, I wanted to do something that was interactive and something that would only succeed if I went out into the world and asked people to do something, which was maybe seemed a little bit strange. And I started this, I think I started it in 2000. So anyway, I had this um, notebook, that uh, nine by 12 inch notebook, and it was gridded out into 20 different squares. And I would go up to people and just ask for their fingerprint. So I had a notebook and the um, ink pad and I'd get their fingerprint, and then underneath it, I'd write the date, their sex, their age, what their name was, and how they just and, and their job or how they described what they did. And I took it with me everywhere I went. So I would stand on street corners, I would take it to parties, I brought it to the classroom, and my goal was to try to get uh, a thousand fingerprints. I thought that would be amazing. And then when I got to a thousand. I realized, well, I touched a thousand people, but that isn't a very big number. So I kept working on it and working on it. And I think to date I have over 10,000 fingerprints. No. <laughs> yeah. And wow. then, so the idea was to create almost like a wallpaper effect. So when you walked into the room, you'd be surrounded by these thousands and thousands of fingerprints, you know, each one representing a place where I interacted with somebody and, you know, a fingerprint, uh, as we all know, has a really lovely design on it. But it's it's we don't really see it, uh, but we leave it every place we go. So we're always leaving this mark behind. And in this project, it was a place where you could make it visible. And it, I started also, you know, kind of during a time where there was sort of the beginning of a lot more suspicion of people and who was an outsider and you know, who shouldn't be included. And so. Um, in that sense, it was a little bit political, but it was really about the momentary interaction and also that I had to touch all these strangers and hold someone's hand. When you're getting a fingerprint, you are basically holding a person's hand and you could get sort of a sense of who they were by did they relinquish and just let you take the power? Did they hold their hand very rigidly? Did they try to roll it? Did they try to hold your hand for too long? So that was kind of it. That was an interesting part of it. That's so interesting. And it's also... I love how it's such an invitation. It's it, you're inviting people into this thing, especially I guess if you're comparing it to you know the inverse of this where people are if people are being like cataloged in a negative way, you know, that's 
I guess, exclusive versus inclusive. It's so interesting. Well, you know, and it was another example of just asking people something and them saying yes, because out of the, you know, 10,000 or more fingerprints I, I have, I would guess less than 100 people said no, probably way less than 100. That's a pretty small percentage to have a stranger come up to you and ask for a fingerprint. Now, I haven't done it as much recently, and maybe I would have more, you know, maybe I would have more no's, but um, at the time, people were pretty pretty compliant with it. That's unreal. I was going to ask if you had asked 100,000 people in order to get that 10,000, but that's wild that you had so many people say yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and so you're creating art like this. How does your art world end up colliding with the prison world? Because that's where I came to know you, or at least down the road came to be aware of you? Well, a couple of things got me into prison. Um, I have been interested in prisons for a long time, or just curious. And, you know, wh- what happens in there? How do people survive these really difficult situations? And, and, and where just, was that curiosity coming from for you? I think it was trying to understand how you find meaning. Like, how do you make a worthy life when you're in a place where so much has been taken away from you? And it, and it was pretty abstract. And, you know, I thought about it in terms of prisons and, and monasteries um, when people grow up in ways that they feel very deprived. So it wasn't just prisons, but it was just this idea of how do you find meaning? And then two kind of funny things happened. One was I started getting mail misdelivered to my house from San Quentin. And it happened like four times. And I was living on a street called San Bruno and the mail was supposed to be going to his, uh, a house on Valencia street. So the, the street names and the numbers weren't similar in any way. And so it was bizarre. So I would get the letters and often they would have beautiful decorations on the envelope and I would bring it to the house where it was supposed to go. And I would just leave it there. And I never, I never heard from the person. I would just leave them, but it was weird. It happened at least four times. So I started thinking about San Quentin prison, which is near San Francisco where I live. And then I heard a story on the radio about a prison in Russia called Kresky Prison. And it was just a, it was a story about this really difficult, terrible prison that was being opened for tourists to come visit. And I thought that was really awful. I mean, it was a working prison. So you could go in, you could go look at the guys in the cells, and then you would end up at this gift shop where you could buy things that the guys inside made. Whoa. Yeah, just, I thought despicable, really despicable. And yeah. I was curious just to go to a country where that would happen. So I was I was going to Sweden, which isn't too far from, from Russia and St. Petersburg. So I just decided to take a trip there. So I took the train there and I spent a couple of days in St. Petersburg. And I asked a lot of people where the prison was and nobody was very helpful. And then on my last day leaving, I was at the train station and I realized the prison was right next to the train station. And so I walked over there, I looked around it and everything was in Cyrillic. So I couldn't read the no trespassing sign. So I actually walked onto the grounds of the prison and I found laying on the ground, all of these very odd cone shaped objects. They were about eight inches long and they had wrapped up paper and with this brown substance at the bottom, they looked like, I call them communication cones, but they just looked like a a dart or something that you would throw. And they were hundreds on the ground and they were really beautiful. So I took one home with me and I started researching and I found out that guys inside the prison throw these objects out the window as a way to communicate with the outside world. They're weighted down with chewed up bread. So that's what the brown substance was at the bottom. 
And I started thinking about that and it felt like another form of communication, like someone trying to reach the outside world, but never knowing if their message was going to get to its intended recipient. So between those misdelivered letters and finding those cones outside the prison, I just felt like I had to get into a prison and figure out how could the inside and outside world communicate in a way that wasn't about miscommunication. And I heard about the Prison University Project at San Quentin Prison, which is run by all volunteer professors. So they teach classes inside and men can earn an AA degree. So that's how I started going in. I know it's kind of a long story, but that's what got me into the prison. That's really interesting. And I love that curiosity kind of continued to lead the way. Is it possible? I would love to share. I'd love to email yeah. you a picture of what the communication cone looks like, because I know it's hard to describe oh, it, but it's a really cool and beautiful object. Yeah, we'll put it up in the show notes so people can see it. Okay. That sounds amazing. It reminds me a little bit of, I had this other artist on the podcast a few months ago. She's a friend of mine. Her name is Amber Ray. And Amber her focus is on this idea of like wonder over worry and she's gotten to create all kinds of beautiful things, but she really lives by this idea of, of clues. She says, you kind of look around the world and and you start to notice sometimes clues pop up in threes. And it sounds like you've got your first two clues, which are, you know, these letters being sent to your home and then, you know, showing up and, and finding these cones in a completely different country if this idea of clues isn't too woo-woo, you know, what is your third clue at this point? Is it seeing this opportunity to to teach in a university setting in a prison setting? Oh my God, that's so interesting. I love that. No, I, I, I love those synchronistic connections. And I think if we keep our eyes open, everybody has them. So no, I don't think it's too woo-woo at all. I love that. Maybe it is. Maybe the third one. Uh, the first thing I was going to say, that, well, I was going to say the third one was meeting Erlon, but... <laughs> my co-host, but maybe I think it was actually going into the prison and teaching because it gave me a reason to be in there. I wasn't just like a tourist going in. Oh, I'm interested. I want to see what's happening. And, and through, I did that for three semesters. So I think that probably was the third thing that brought all of this together. Yeah, that's, I I like that. Thank you. Good, good. (laughs) Okay. So you're teaching, did I read that you were teaching photography? Yes. So I was teaching a history of photography class because the men inside can't actually have cameras, but Um, I was trying to use it as a, as a creative way. One taught learning about images and learning how to talk about images, but also bringing in photographs that the men could think about, um, ways they could insert themselves into the photograph and interpret it in a personal way as, as, so they could talk about their own experiences. So that was a lot of the class. And uh, even though it was history, it was kind of a little bit more creative writing um, and interacting with photographs. So like, for example, um, I would bring in prints of photographs by well-known artists with a large kind of white border around them and give them to the men and they would take them back to their housing unit for a couple weeks and they would map out the photograph and draw on it and, and kind of figure out the subtext and then after they would map it to figure out the meaning of the photograph they would use that to write a narrative on it so they create in some ways and this is another visual i'd love to share but they they use that photograph as a is almost a sculpture or, or you know, is it, is it inspiration for a narrative or, or a sculpture, even though it was flat, but you know, they wrote on it, they, they mapped it. It's pretty nice. And it was really about storytelling. Okay. So that, that totally makes sense then that maybe that's even like a, a step further into the world of storytelling within prisons, because I guess what I'm curious about is 
you know, how in the world are you creating a podcast in a prison? You know, like how, how does this prison have the capability to do this? What does that look like? Yeah. yeah. How the heck does this happen? Uh, yeah. It, it is mysterious. And it speaks to how mysterious prisons are to most people on the outside, right? There are these tall walls that we normally can't get over. So we have no idea what happens in them. So a couple of things about San Quentin that are, are important. It's a medium security prison. Prisons are, you know, level two, three, and four, four being the highest level of security and probably the most dangerous. And as you go down in number, there's less security. So although San Quentin is still a difficult and at times dangerous place, it is a medium security prison. And because it's in the Bay Area, there are a lot of volunteers that go in there. So there's lots of different programs in there. For example, there's a Shakespeare group, there's a poetry class, there's yoga, um, there's you know, educational programs. And I think it was in 2008, I might not be right about that date, but around that time, the Discovery Channel went into San Quentin to do a film. And in return for getting that access, they actually set up a film school where guys, I think it was about a six week class where guys learned a lot of different skills about using cameras and how to do narratives, how to tell a story, which is great. And then the Discovery Channel left all that equipment behind as a donation. There's a media lab there that has computers and cameras. And so the men inside, along with one of, a person who worked for the prison, do, do like little films inside the prison, public service announcements and little documentaries. And there's also a newspaper inside the prison called the San Quentin News that's been around for at least 30 years. So there is a familiarity with media in there and the administration actually supports it. So it wasn't like I went in there and there was nothing happening. There was already a little media lab. And so when we started moving, we I started working with some, some men that I met through my class, started working on doing audio stories. We actually had a place where we could work. That's really, really interesting. And it makes me want to zoom out really quick and just ask, you're in this prison and you're getting to know these guys. Had you had experience in prisons at all before? Or did you have any sort of connection point? What were you even more so, what were you kind of learning or how were, you know, your beliefs being challenged by your time in this prison? So, no, I had never been in a prison before. And my, besides, you know, being curious and having those two synchronistic things happen, my views on prison had been shaped by bad TV and movies and media. And when I went in, I assumed that it was going to be scary that it would be dangerous, that there might be a lot of confrontation, that I would be dealing with people who didn't have a lot of education, didn't have a lot of insight. And all of that was challenged from the very beginning. Um, the Prison University Project does a really good orientation before you go in. So, you know, I, I'd had somewhat of an idea. But when I walked into the classroom for the first time, you know, I was probably nervous for the first couple minutes because one, it was all men and I'm not used to always being around men and it was a prison. But very quickly, our conversations fell into the kind of conversation I would have with any student. And I very quickly realized, and I'm embarrassed to say this now, but I very quickly realized that people inside prison are as varied and as complicated in the way they interact with the world as people on the outside. So of course, there were people who were really educated. I had students in my class that had master's degrees, you know, and then, then I had people who had gotten GEDs in prison. Um, I had all different ages, you know, we would, have serious conversations. We would laugh. We, you know, like anything that happened on the outside happened in there, but I definitely went in not expecting that. I expected caricatures and, you know, what I found were just human beings, you know, complicated, interesting people. <laughs> Was it during this time that you especially connected with 
the crew that is now like making this podcast and bringing it to life? Not with the particular people I'm working with. I met some other people and we moved into doing audio and I, and we worked on a radio project for about two and a half years. And in doing that radio project is where I met Erlon and eventually Antoine. So it was, you know, it was like a three year period, um, before we got actually to the podcast. But what was good about that period is it gave me a chance to understand prison better, but maybe even more importantly, it gave the guys inside a chance to get to know me and who I was and what I was about and to show that I had a commitment to being in there. I wasn't just going to go in, do a project and try to claim it, take it out and make it mine. You know, like there's a lot of trust that has to get built um, because I can always leave prison and I can always do what, you know, I wouldn't, but I could make stuff in there, take it out and represent it in any way I wanted to. And I don't want to work that way. I want it to work as a collaboration. So they had to learn what kind of person I was and if they wanted to work with me and if they wanted to trust me. So it was a process. Tell me about Ear Hustle. We've alluded to it a little bit. Yes, yes, um, yes. Giving yes. people a little bit of context. Yay, um, and, conversation. <laughs> but yeah, like, t- tell me you know, what this is. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So Ear Hustle is the podcast that comes out of San Quentin. And I, my co-host is Erlon Woods, who's incarcerated at San Quentin. And then the third person we work with is Antoine Williams, who's the sound designer. And we had met doing this audio project, which was much more kind of news oriented, shorter stories. And I wanted to do something more from the perspective of an artist that was storytelling. And I talked to Erlon about it and he really loved the idea. And so together we hatched this plan to create a podcast. And we thought at the time it would just be played inside the prison. That was the idea. We would interview guys and talk about everyday life inside to be played on the closed circuit station. And we thought we would put music on it. We would do interviews. We would talk and kind of be the hosts of it. And we started working on that and we brought Antoine in because he's a musician and we realized we wanted to have music to keep people interested. Uh, And that was the plan. Uh, And then I heard about the Radiotopia podcast and Radiotopia is a podcast network and they were trying to find a new podcast to add to their roster. So we submitted for that and it was a long process and out of 1500 applications, we ended up winning. Oh, wow. Which was great. I mean, it was wild. That's a lot. It was a lot of people. And so what winning meant was that we would be picked up by the network and they would help support us and educate us. And then we would get the podcast played outside the prison. So that's how your hustle came to be uh, what it is now. But originally it started as a much more humble idea of just playing stories inside the prison and trying to get it played in other prisons in California which we're in the process of doing, but now it's heard outside the prison. <laughs> it's so good. It's heard in my in my headphones like every single time that a new episode comes out. I have so many friends who also listen. It feels to me like it's really blowing up. And, and I don't know the numbers on your guys' side, but it seems like it's really caught on. What would you say is the thing that people are most drawn to? You know, I'm trying to figure out even for myself what draws me in. Yeah. Like why care, right? Like why do people care? When we started working with Radiotopia, we had a lot of apprehension. I, we weren't sure how it was going to be received. I think a lot of assumption was that there would maybe be negative reaction to it. People wouldn't care. Um, but I think because it draws back the curtain a little bit on a world that is mostly invisible and because it shows people in a three-dimensional way, it allows them to speak for themselves. It doesn't pander 
to stereotypes or expectation, maybe people are just surprised and they didn't even realize how much they wanted a more authentic view of what's happening in the criminal justice system. And also, I mean, there's, there's, I think it's 2.5 million, something like that, that are incarcerated in the United States. So it's a huge number. And all those people have family and friends. And I think they're also hungry to hear the stories of people that are family members or loved ones that are inside. I just think it, it caught um, an imagination, people's imagination that way. And I also think we're living in really difficult, conservative, ugly times. And maybe people don't really want that. They want something that's, that's um, I guess, more complicated. I keep using three-dimensional, but something that's just more genuine and is going to challenge their assumptions. Yeah. I think that's probably it for me. It's that three-dimensional quality of hearing this interview with this person. And if you just took out that intro where it's like, you know, this is their name, this is how long they're incarcerated for, and this is why they're incarcerated— there's almost no connection to them being in prison. You know, I'm just hearing the story of somebody in a particular context and it, it really wipes away, you know, the stereotypes that I had that I didn't even realize that I had. It, it really pushes that away. That's what's amazing to me is that, you know, smart, thoughtful people, you know, still have those stereotypes. I'm, I'm including myself. It's amazing what stereotypes linger. And so I think it, it's, we want those to be challenged. Like we want to have a broader understanding of people and, and commonality. One of the things we talk about, at least, you know, in pitch meetings and when we're putting stories together is we really want to do stories about commonality. So what you say makes me really happy that you can relate to what's happening inside. If you took away the beginning, you didn't know. Yeah. It's just another person struggling with something or, or reveling in something um, and, and trying to move forward and be a contributing citizen. Would you say that when you started this, you had that sort of mission in mind, like, oh, we're going to kind of challenge people's belief systems? Or was it was it curiosity that led, you know, what was your main purpose when you started this, do you think? And, and how did that shift? Yeah. So for me, it was curiosity and, and, and also wanting to do good art, you know, wanting to do something that had quality, something that would be intriguing and, and, and unexpected and would definitely challenge people. But I was definitely thinking of it in terms of an artist, not necessarily as a social activist, even though that was part of it. But if I'm honest, I believe that you can change, you can make change through what you touch and what you deeply care about. I care about prison reform, but I'm not a numbers person and I'm not someone who feels I could change the world. Right. I have something small to contribute and I have to do it from the with the whatever the talents or the toolbox that I have. And then I like the idea that we present something like your hustle. And then those people who have more power or see the world in a more of a reform way can take what we do and use it for that. I hope that makes sense. But totally. I think to do something well, you have to do it from your heart. And my heart was that of an artist that wants to tell interesting stories. You know, for Erlon, he wants to tell stories, but he really wants to change the system. You know, I mean, he's suffered under a really harsh sentence and, you know, he knows firsthand how difficult and bad prisons are and he wants us to change. And I do too. I'm not saying I don't, but our motivations are probably slightly different, but they come together in a really beautiful way and we support each other's desire. You know, nothing in the podcast is, I would say, explicit about the criminal justice system or, you know, prison reform. And I would imagine that actually opens the doors for people in a really nice way where you create 
a quote unquote safe space for people to show up and just be like, I'm going to connect with these humans. And then they can take that to mean whatever they want it to mean there. But I love that idea. And it totally makes sense of, you know, you're creating this thing and you're not a numbers person and you're a stories person. You're creating stories. Then the numbers people can take these stories and they can say, okay, now, you know, let's multiply this unique story you just heard by X amount. and, And this is the impact here. And this is the impact there. And what if we shifted this thing? And I don't know, we've talked a lot about prison reform on the podcast and, you know, the epidemic of mass incarceration and just the American prison system. And I don't know, I I love the conversations we've had so much, but there's still something so uniquely humanizing about the storytelling that you're doing. And I love that you're doing that from, you know, your place as an artist. You're, You're totally staying in your lane and doing the thing that you're so qualified at and you're doing it so well. Well, that's a beautiful compliment. And if you saw me, I'd be blushing. Um, I really appreciate that. But I think you bring up a great point is that you have to stay in your lane. I mean, you can push your lane and grow, but you have to be true to who you are. And if you're not, I don't think you can do good work. You try to wear all these different titles. I personally don't think you can do something well. And, you know, one thing about the way we've connected gives me a sense that we are actually connecting with people is we get so much response from listeners through emails and through letters that are sent to us and through photographs of people listening. And the spectrum of response or the experience of the responder is huge. Like we get things from correctional officers, police officers, district attorneys, victims of crime, people who have families in prison, self-described, you know, middle American housewives that say they've never, you know, even thought about this, students. I mean, the list goes on and on. And and I love that. That makes me think that we can talk with people who on the surface may not seem like they have anything in common. But again, like to go back to showing commonality allows people to do that, to want to be part of a conversation. And I was really concerned with victims when we started this project. Like I didn't want anyone to think we were minimizing the trauma that some of these guys have inflicted because they've done some really difficult things and there have been people who have been really hurt. And so we want to take, you know, we want accountability to be part of it, but I've gotten some of the most moving letters um, and emails from people who have been victims of crime and, and talking about how important this podcast has been for them to help them with their healing and their perspective. And I wouldn't want to out this person, but a person whose partner was murdered has been in touch with me quite a bit about how important the podcast is. And that that's incredible. Yeah. And why do you think that is? Why do you think that that's so important to these people? Is it? Yeah, I don't know. I don't even have a guess. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I always think I have not been a victim of a violent crime. And so I really always want to be careful to never put myself in their position because how could we know? But but one of the things I believe is that we don't really want the world to be full of monsters. And sometimes the media and unfortunately politicians want us to think that way, right? That there just is a dangerous world. And instead of thinking with compassion about how people get to this place where they're able to do inflict pain on other people. And I'm not making excuses for it, um, but I'm just trying to understand it. And so I think having a heart full of compassion, it makes you a better person. It makes you a happier person. It makes you a more capable person. But again, I don't want to diminish the pain and I don't want people to not take responsibility for the things that they've done 
you know, we have to, you have to take responsibility and you have to understand why you've ended up in prison. But, oh, this is going to sound so corny, but I think that love is really what we want as humans. You know, we want to, we want to be able to love. Yeah. I don't think that's corny at all. I think you're so right. But I, I'm most moved by people who have had trauma, who want to, who want to reach out and let us know that they're listening and that they care. So, and you know, many, many, most people inside prison have experienced horrible trauma too. Just unspeakable things. So, Well, and maybe that's even a good transition to, you know, a, a question I, I, I maybe even want to end on is, you mentioned this before, but you create commonality. You know, that's the goal that you and Antoine and Erlan kind of go into this with is creating commonality. Um, and it seems that you're finding it and, and you're even finding it in the letters you're receiving. And, you know, people are, are experiencing that for people who, you know, maybe aren't artists or aren't, you know, spending time in prisons, you know, maybe even, you know, as we go home for the holidays, how can we find more commonality with people that, you know, feel different from us? Yeah. Well, I think one, one way to do it is through volunteerism. I started volunteering in the prison. I started giving my time and that's how this whole world opened up to me. Um, anytime I've done something from a place of, I guess, giving and not doing it because I was trying to figure out what I was going to get. I think that's really helpful. And yes, going into the holidays is a really good time to think about how, how do you give to other people and how does that open you up to experience the world in a, in a much brighter way. So I think it's about giving and it's about listening and going into all those things, assuming you don't know anything and you're ready to have other people broaden your perspective on the world. So I guess it's being a little bit humble too. Like it's okay to be in a, a place of not knowing and having to have other people educate you. I think that's a really good answer. And I love that you use that word humble again, because you started off the podcast talking about how your art has been focusing on, you know, lifting up the overlooked and the humble. And maybe what we're getting around to at this end point is also becoming the overlooked and the humble. And maybe there's something cyclical and special that happens there. There is because, I mean, we have to all admit the one thing that's going to take us out is time, right? We are all finite beings. At some point we will be obsolete and it's very hard. I mean, we are, we're the protagonists of our story, but at some point we'll become a footnote. And as humans, we have to live with that duality. And so but I think it's important to realize that like we have to be humble because we will not always be the most important thing in the room. Um, but what we leave behind and the care that we've, we've given to other people, the love that we've given to other people, that's what's going to live on after we are no longer here. So I think that's how we can contribute through, through a kind of a sort of kindness, a sort of leaving, leaving things better <laughs> than what you found them. God, that sounds like a cliche, but it is about understanding that you will go from being a protagonist to a footnote. And what do you want that footnote to be? Wow, y'all. Oh my goodness. Nigel's fantastic. She seeks to find commonality and compassion in the places where society least expects them. And she's doing it with a sense of resilience and a whole lot of hope. I especially love that she said when she's done something from a place of giving and not from a place of figuring out what she was going to get in return, she has been beautifully surprised. 
And we need to remember to tell ourselves that giving to other people helps us experience the world in a much brighter way. It's about listening and giving and assuming that we don't know anything and that we're ready for others to widen our perspectives. Thank you, Nigel, so much for being on the show and for this beautiful reminder. If you haven't already downloaded Ear Hustle and listened to it, you've got to do it. It's really fun. I am a huge fan. Like Nigel said, it draws back this curtain on a world that is mostly invisible. And it does it in a funny way, in an interesting way. It's fantastic. Okay, and this is normally the part of the podcast where I tell you to follow the guest on social media. And and you totally should follow Ear Hustle and Nigel on Instagram and Twitter. But also the folks in the prison that she works with, you know, Nigel's co-hosts, they don't have social media. And so if you want to reach out to them, you can send a written postcard uh, in prison terms. It's called a kite to, get this, Ear Hustle SQ P.O. Box 883723, San Francisco, California, 94188-3723. If you are new to Sounds Good, we would love for you to stick around, listen to more episodes. We've got so many fun episodes. You might especially enjoy our conversations with Timba Smits and Adam Foss. Timba shared the story of actually being a victim of crime and how that affected his life, but then also how he's come to forgive the person who committed the crime against him. And then Adam Foss, we just had him on the podcast maybe just a month or two ago, and he is a prosecutor working to change the criminal justice system in whatever ways he can. Both of them offer a really unique perspective on the conversation we had today, and I hope that you'll check them out on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is created by me, Brandon Harvey, as a part of Good, Good, Good. Good, Good, Good is a community that believes in the power of celebrating good news and becoming good news. I want to thank Chad Michael Snavely and the team at CM Studio for editing and mixing this show. And special thank you to Christy Karen Brock for all of her production support. You can find lots more hopeful news stories outside of this podcast by following us on social media everywhere at Good, Good, Good. I think my favorite spot is Instagram, but you know, we've got Twitter, we've got a Facebook group, we've got all of the things. We also create a beautiful quarterly newspaper that celebrates the people, ideas, and movements that are shaping the world for the better. Issue one and issue two of the good newspaper hold so many stories that I want you to read. They're amazing. They're great for the holiday season. You can order your copies today, or you can even subscribe. Check out the good newspaper and see what else we do at goodgoodgood.co. And on that note, that is a wrap for this week's episode. Spend this week challenging the system in a meaningful way and start with finding the commonalities that bind humanity together. What if we all chose compassion from this day forward instead of fear? Sound good? 